0: this is sarah stewart holland
1: and this is beth silvers thank you for joining us for pantsuit politics
0: Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where we take a different approach to the news. Often, relevance in the news spawn conspiracy theories online. The president of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, is in the U.S. this week, and we know that conflict in particular has been fertile ground for conspiracy theories. We're getting further and further into the campaign calendar, which also creates its own ecosystem of conspiracies online. And so we have invited Mike Rothschild back to discuss his new book, Jewish Space Lasers, the Rothschilds, and 200 Years of Conspiracy Theories, and how conspiracy theories and anti-Semitic tropes grow side-by-side and have for hundreds of years. Before we get started... We're delighted to head to two new-to-us states
1: this November. We have not done speaking events in either of these states before, so we're really excited to meet some of you who've never had a chance to see us in person. We'll be at Southeastern Louisiana University in Hammond, Louisiana, on the afternoon of Thursday, November 9th. Then we'll speak to the Diabetes Coalition of Mississippi in Jackson the morning of November 10th. Both events are open to the public, and there are more details in our show notes. We're so excited. These are our last public speaking events of 2023. So if you are in or near Louisiana or Mississippi,
0: we would love to see you there. Now, don't worry. We are currently booking for 2024, but we only have eight spots available. because we have kids. We can't be on the road all the time, okay? But we would love to come to your community or organization in one of those eight spots. We would love to help you deal with a tough conversation you're having in your community or a difficult transition you're facing in your organization. So, if you work somewhere or go to school or church somewhere that would enjoy having us come speak, please check out our website, PantsuitPoliticsShow.com, for more details, or reach out to our managing director, Elise, at Hello at PantsuitPoliticsShow.com for more details. Next up, welcome
1: back, Mike Rothschild. Nick thank you so much for coming back to Pantsy Politics.
2: Well, thank you for having me back.
1: I was reading your book while I took in the first Republican debate. When That's a
2: lot of punishment.
1: <laughs> I'm a glutton uh, for punishment. <laughs> when I heard Ron DeSantis name check George Soros, which is a very common thing, not unexpected in a Republican debate. I heard it really differently because of your book. So I would love for you to give us an introduction to your book via the George Soros baggage that is carried by those name checks.
2: Sure. Uh, And it's a great place to start because, you know, on one hand, it is the end of the book, but at the same time, it's the most current part of this particular story. So what I write about in the book is that George Soros is essentially the Rothschilds of the 21st century. I, I didn't come up with that term, but I think it's a really apropos term because in our society, in Western society, we have a need for scapegoats. We have a need for someone to blame our problems on and and our political failures or business failures or personal failures, it's never our fault. It has to be somebody else. And psychologically, we really wanna believe that there is a vast conspiracy out there pulling the strings, controlling what happens, and that that vast conspiracy uh, has targeted us because we are important. We have the special secret Mm -hmm. knowledge to take them down and we need to be taken out. And that's really where somebody like Soros comes in. Soros is seen as the funder of all of these kind of anti-democratic progressive ideals, drug law reform, uh, prison reform, voting reform. So when something happens in one of those worlds and you don't like it, you blame Soros because you have have taken in a lot of media that tells you Soros did it. Soros is funding this initiative, this DA, that foundation. It's all coming from the puppet master, the guy at the very top. So for two centuries, that was the Rothschild family. And now it is George Soros. And of course, it's going to start transitioning away from him because he's 93 and he's not going to be around forever.
0: Now we do want to clarify. You are not related to the Rothschild family that you write about in the book.
2: I am not related to the Rothschild family. There's a big asterisk on the cover. Uh, I don't no love that. Relation. Part. I even, you know, I got a private press genealogy book of my Rothschild family. We come from a completely different part of Germany, totally different trajectory. Uh, and one of the interesting things about the Rothschilds, and I didn't really realize this uh, the banking Rothschilds, not the me Rothschilds. <laughs> the non-rich Rothschilds, who I represent, is that that family never emigrated to the U.S. There were a number of opportunities that the Rothschilds had, and none of the family members wanted to come to the U.S. They thought it was too much of a backwater. It was too far away. They had their palaces and their horses and their art collections in Europe. Why would you leave? So the Rothschilds were really overtaken in the United States because nobody from the family thought about coming out here nobody saw the opportunity that was present so that's a very long-winded explanation of saying i am not related to the the rothschilds of frankfurt
0: but before we get into how they feed conspiracy theories even sharing the same last name and i thought some of the writing you did in the book about the perception of the rothschilds within the jewish community was so interesting I think if you are informed through the conspiracy lens, you missed that like they were real people and they were very and still are and very, very rich and that they had a totally different perception within the, the Jewish community as this like beacon of hope and, and prosperity and promise.
2: Yeah, the Rothschilds were always referred to in Jewish stories and Jewish jokes as— you know, you better clean up your shtetl because a Rothschild might pass through, and you—you you know, everything's got to look good. You—if you, everything went well in your life, you were a Rothschild. You know, the—the the song from Fiddler on the Roof, "If I Were a Rich Man," is based on a story called "If I Were a Rothschild."
0: I about died. I did too. I about died at that part in the book.
2: <laughs> of course, in the Hebrew translation of the musical, and then in the Yiddish translation that was done within about the last ten years, it's still "If I Were a Rothschild." So wow. that idea that if you are a Rothschild you have achieved the the best a Jewish person can do and they are they are a beacon of aspiration. So putting aside all of the conspiracy theories and you know we'll get to all of that stuff you look at the Rothschilds as if everything turns out right I will have the safety and security of the Rothschilds and that's a really powerful image for Jews to look up to.
0: And it's the foundation for the conspiracy theories cuz I think about the ways I have heard the Rothschilds reference, and you talk about this in your book. Lots of references inside rap lyrics, the, and it's it's that it's that foundation of there's success here, and so it's just the the funhouse mirror of on one side it feels like a beacon of promise, and then you pass through this you know funhouse mirror experience of what happens with the conspiracies, and then it twists into something like well there's success here, and that means there's something dark here, like that scapegoating.
2: Right, it's. They're successful, but are they too successful? Yeah. Are they too powerful? And and that's so such a photo negative of the American experience because America is you know if you dream it you can do it and and there's nothing too big and too much is never enough. Nobody's ever too rich. Well, except you know those people. Mm. And it's it's a very that that kind of double standard really informs a lot of the writing about the family. Like we love success, we love money, we love opulence. But maybe you're a little too successful. Maybe you're a little too opulent. That's a little suspicious, too. It's it's a very odd river to navigate.
1: I thought it was so helpful to see these distinctions in your book. The Rothschilds never came to America. George Soros was a Republican before he got concerned about authoritarianism in the world and then started funding, you know, quote unquote, progressive causes. It just made me realize how much we are always just playing a game of telephone And Mm -hmm. getting things wrong as we pass them along. But then when you layer on top of that, seemingly since the beginning of time, discrimination against Jews, it becomes something really insidious. So will you take us to the synopsis of the true and accurate story of the Rothschild family? For people who don't know this family, just a, a little bit on how did they make their money? How did they get their start? And then... Why they became this photo negative for people of conspiracy minds.
2: So, the Rothschild family history really starts in the Jewish ghetto of Frankfurt in the mid 1700s. This was a walled in, narrowly packed ghetto. It was a, basically a walled city that the Jewish people were only allowed to leave at certain times, uh, only a certain number of marriages were allowed. I mean, it was essentially a prison within a city. And in that world, you had a number of Ah, uh, small-time uh, coin dealers, money changers, ah uh, small banks who would make small loans or or bigger loans depending on what was needed by the Christian community, and Mayor Amshel Rothschild was part of that community. His father had been a a small-time loan maker. His father had been a small-time loan maker. Mayer uh, actually went to rabbinical school, but his parents died uh, in very quick succession and he had to move back. So he started off as uh, dealing in coins and metals and making small loans. He eventually becomes the court Jew to the crown prince of Hesse. Now that's a, a term that's probably gonna raise a lot of people's hackles, but it's an actual term. It's essentially the Jewish banker who worked in a private capacity to royalty. So the the royals of Europe and particularly the Holy Roman Empire could not borrow from Christians because Christians were not allowed to lend at interest. So they borrowed from Jews and they would have a Jew in their informal court to make these deals, make these loans. It was a position that gave them a little bit more prominence in the Jewish community, but also brought in a lot of danger because if your patron died, the next prince usually had no use for the last court Jew and uh, that usually didn't end very well. So Mayor was the court jew to the Crown Prince of Hesse. By that point, he started having children. They had 10 children, he and his wife Goodall, uh, five sons and five daughters. Naturally, the daughters are almost completely written out of the story. They had no, no role in the business. Um, so, One of the things I hope to rectify with the book. The five sons, uh, one in succession after another, begin working for the family business. Mayer becomes more and more powerful. Eventually, the Napoleonic Wars break out, and Frankfurt is uh, taken over by France. And the at that point, the elector of Hesse is one of the officials who helps elect the Holy Roman Emperor, has to go on the run. So the elector of Hesse has an interesting role in American history. He made the vast majority of his money loaning foreign mercenaries called Hessians, and the loaning of Hessians to... England is one of the original grievances in the Declaration of Independence. So there's a lot of intermixing with American history, with Jewish history. Mayer, by this point, his son Amschel is also helping run the business in Frankfurt. They have this enormous amount of money that they basically have to hide from Napoleon. And they start funneling this money back and forth across the English Channel to London, where another Rothschild son named Nathan has gone, made a huge amount of money in the textile business. And the Rothschild family essentially props up the effort against Napoleon. This, of course, ends at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Uh, Napoleon is defeated. By this point, the Rothschilds have made an enormous amount of money on bonds, on loans, on the sale of gold. So Mayer dies in 1812, relatively prosperous. His son Nathan would die in 1836 as the richest man in the world. So the Rothschilds made a huge amount of money very, very quickly, and eventually that started to arouse suspicion among people who were left out of that bonanza.
0: And it's so interesting to me. There's just so many aspects of this. I know you're like, this is not a history of the Rothschild family, but I'm like, well, I'm going to need one after this book because like I've learned just enough to be super curious about the rest of it. And you just from the beginning like there's so many interesting aspects about like sort of the jewish stereotype around money and how that how that formed over time you had so many religions including christianity that forbid interest charging interest which now we just take for granted and forget that that everybody does that now i thought the aspect of just currency exchange there's just aspects of our economy that i think we associate digital economy with a global economy, but they had a global economy back then too. It just looked different. And they had to do a lot of the things that we had to do, like change currency and like sell gold and all this stuff. And you, you see their ability to take that moment in history and adapt. And then in the same moment, miss the moment of this developing market in America and such a human way. Like just the the successes, the luck, the, the missed opportunity is so human and so filled with like good calls and bad calls that you realize it's not about them. Like this scapegoating, this what we do with this narrative is really not about the human beings themselves. Some people make a lot of money, then some people lose a lot of money. And that really has almost nothing to do with it. But it does feel like the money in the sense that when you have a lot of money, you have a lot of power that we don't like, but we can't quite name it. And so we find these scapegoats and we find moments in history where we want to blame somebody and we're like, well, we think money means power. And we this group is who we scapegoat anyway throughout history for lots of reasons. So let's just put these together. And this is our... But again, that, that implies a logic that's so wild because this is developing in bits and pieces, when you were like pulling apart the Waterloo story about him learning (laughs) and being able to take advantage of it, that still pops up on Alex Jones's show, like 200 years later, 300 years later, that it's like you can you can sort of intellectualize it and you forget, like, well, there was nothing intellectual about how this was all coming together.
2: Right. And the banking industry completely changed as the Rothschilds were gaining their power. They they made their wealth through these massive loans that they made to royalty to prime ministers if you know Benjamin Disraeli needed a whole bunch of money to buy the Egyptian share of the Suez Canal he went to Rothschild because nobody else had the money and then of course banking all changed
0: well royalty changed they just ran out of royals there for a while <laughs> we ran out of
2: royals i mean the 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 you know the holy roman empire fell apart you know these these great empires the kaisers the czars they all got deposed and the way that the rothschilds did business in the 19th century didn't work in the 20th century the loaning of gold wasn't really done anymore the rothschild's communication system which was so novel when they first did it everybody did that the rothschilds actually distrusted the telegraph um th- there's all kinds of mistakes and assumptions and and failing to change with the times that the rothschilds were part of and by the time you know certainly the first world war broke out the Rothschilds—they were certainly wealthy. They were, you know, they were well known, but they didn't have the power to make those kinds of loans. When the uh, when England and France needed a loan to fight the First World War, they went to J.P. Morgan. They, Rothschild had nowhere near the kind of money they needed. So, you know, by that point, the Rothschild is much more a myth. It's much more a mythos and a name, and of course, with myth comes conspiracy theory.
1: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three
0: years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pansy Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth, it makes it feel special. I don't know how you do your job without losing your mind, because then it's like they fade away and that just feeds the conspiracy theory. Well, they're so powerful. We don't even know what they're doing anymore. No, they just made some bad calls. That's what happened. That's why you don't hear about them all the time anymore.
2: Right. You get the, uh, you know, why are there no Rothschilds on the Forbes richest list? Oh, they're so powerful. They had their names taken off. Oh, no, gracious. they're just not among the richest people in the world anymore. That just times have changed.
1: So build that bridge for us a little bit. Mike, talk to us about why Alex Jones in particular is so obsessed with the Rothschild
2: mythology. This is really one of the biggest things I wanted to do with the book was to build that line going backwards from the Alex Joneses and his ilk of today through the materials that inspired them, through the materials that inspired those works, and and sort of back and back and back to the back to the sources, as we like to say in Judaism. So Alex grew up with a John Birch society father his father uh, david you know was a well-known dentist in dallas i think it was he was a member of the john Birch society and so he had all of these fringe radical thinkers you know these big time you know conservatives of the time who were sort of floating around in that area alex talks about how he was inspired by all of these different great books of history and one of the conspiracy books that really inspired him was the 1971 book, None Dare Call It Conspiracy, which was written by a John Birch Society speechwriter named Gary Allen. That book sold 5 million copies. It was hugely popular. You know, Teenage Alex Jones picks that up and suddenly learns all of the secrets of the insiders and the cabal and all the string pulling. Well, None Dare Call It Conspiracy mentions the Rothschilds many, many, many times, calling them fake Jews claiming that they sat out World War II in their luxury hotels while other Jews suffered. And the big inspirations for None Dare Call it Conspiracy were some of the past books like Secrets of the Federal Reserve. It's another book I talk about quite a bit. It's written by this guy, Eustace Mullins. Well, Mullins was a protege of Ezra Pound. Of course, you know, people know Ezra Pound as this great poet, man of letters, editor. He's also a uh, pretty vicious racist and fascist and a and a rabid anti-Semite. So Ezra Pound takes his inspiration from uh, pre- chiefly from the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So you have this through line from one of the most anti-Semitic works ever put to paper, which has inspired countless acts of violence against Jews, going all the way to right now, going all the way to podcasters and live streamers and internet trolls who are working as we speak. And it is a direct ladder, one rung to the next. And the Rothschilds really are the foundation of that ladder.
0: So what do we do about it, though? (laughs) How do we not go crazy when you feel like, well, goodness, we couldn't keep it contained from the 1700s through the 1900s, and now we have the internet, which is like gasoline on this fire. What do we do in the face of this these conspiracy theories and this anti-Semitism, which is dangerous. It is dangerous. People get killed and hurt. And it's just, I think the the word loses some of its meaning and we forget like it's it's a physical risk.
2: Sure. There is enormous danger, particularly right now. We are in a very public spike of anti-Semitism. We're seeing anti-Semitic acts of violence, vandalism, leafleting. You know, you've got these very fringe groups who maybe only have a few dozen or a few hundred members, but get a lot of attention for passing out flyers with, you know, all of the people in the media industry and banking who are Jews. And then they, you know, they live stream it and then Kanye talks about them. And then it's like this whole moment. So it is a very, very perilous moment for Jews right now. And, you know, every moment is kind of perilous for Jews. But right now in particular, there's a kind of public acceptability of anti-Semitism that is worse even than it was when a lot of this stuff was ticking back up again in the 90s pre 9 11 now you have this idea that it's just all Jews. It's it's the entire Jewish religion who is responsible for all of this. Even then, you know, even in the early 90s, there was this facade of well, it's not all Jews. I'm not anti-Semitic. I love Israel. You find that with somebody like Pat Robertson mm-hmm. when he writes a book uh, called The New World Order, uh, becomes a New York Times bestseller. It's a very very thin retelling of the Protocols of the Elders of <sighs> Zion. But he says, "Oh no, no, no! I I would never say that about Jews. Uh, the the Jewish people are my best friend. I'm just talking about the wealthy string pullers from okay. Europe. Wink, wink, nod, nod. And of course, everybody knows what that means. We we're not doing the wink and the nod anymore. We're just doing, yeah. We've got to get rid of the Jews. You have very, very popular far right internet personalities who will just talk all the time about, it. we just got to get rid of the Jews, and whatever we have to do to them, we'll just do it. That is a that is an escalation." that is fairly new and, and very, very disturbing.
1: Will you tell the story around the title of the book, just in case anyone misses the reference?
2: So, Jewish Space Lasers is that phrase supposedly written by Marjorie Taylor Greene in her absolutely deranged 2018 Facebook post. But, you know, before she got into politics, when she was still just a CrossFit trainer and a, and a Georgia mom— alleging a vast conspiracy behind the uh, 2018 campfire in California. Uh, This was one of the worst wildfires the state has ever had. I remember it quite clearly. Uh, It was terrible, it was terrible to live through. But this is a conspiracy that this fire was set intentionally to clear land for a high speed rail project and that Pacific Gas and Electric was in on it. Jerry Brown was in on it. And of course, one of the PG&E board members was also an executive at Rothschild Inc. And isn't that interesting? Oh,
0: no. Yeah.
2: And of course, all of it is done by this uh, solar, this space-based solar generator that fired a blue beam that everybody could see, and it missed its target and started this fire. So Marjorie Taylor Greene in that post, and this post is is crazy, but she (laughs) never says Jewish space laser. She never says Jewish. Now, she's talking about the Rothschilds, and everybody knows what that means, but that phrase came a little bit later once the post was discovered. And the post wasn't discovered until about three years later. I think just after she was sworn in, just after January 6th, somebody at Media Matters found an archive of that post. And then, of course, it was just jokes and memes and hashtags. And, you know, it's fun to to make fun of stuff like that because it's deranged. But there's also a lot of danger in it. It's very classic Jewish scapegoating. And Jews have been blamed for all sorts of bizarre things, controlling the weather, you know, making it snow, making earthquakes, anything that you can blame on somebody, somebody's probably going to blame on the Jews. And it's very easy to see the Rothschilds as the pinnacle of the Jewish string pullers. So while her post is is ridiculous, there's also a, a real sinister edge to it. And I, And I really wanted to use that as the title because I think it really leans into both the absurdity and the danger.
0: Well, maybe that's my question then. Going forward, as we look back at this flow of conspiracy theories and scapegoating, are there times where you felt like, okay, this worked, like this got it a little bit under control, this dampened down the need for scapegoating or or the desire to blame the Jewish people or whatever? Like, Are there stories where it ebbed in a productive way? <laughs>
2: You know, it does ebb and flow. And one of the things I really found is that it is very cyclical. You would have a major spike of anti Semitism in the late 1840s. There was another one in the US around the Civil War. There was another one in Europe in the 1890s, obviously, the pre war, the pre World War II years. But what happens is that the cycle dies down because for a while we find somebody else to scapegoat. Mm-hmm. And you find that in American history very recently, you know, anti Semitism very popular in the 90s. After 9-11, well, suddenly there's a new scapegoat. There's a new outsider religion to blame everything on. And that that spike in Islamophobia really coincides with a sort of dampening a little bit of anti-Semitism. Then, of course, COVID hits, and now we're suddenly blaming blaming China. We're blaming Asian Americans. And so anti-Semitism tamps down a little bit there. But it comes back. It always comes back because eventually it – comes back around to the Jews. And I talk about this in the book, how COVID-19 was eventually blamed on the Rothschilds. You know, there's some researcher who patented a, a form of viral testing. His last name happened to be Rothschild, oh. And he uh, re-upped that patent for COVID-19. And people are going, oh, you see, he, the, the Rothschilds knew COVID-19 was gonna happen. Well, it, first of all, they didn't. But also, you would think if there's a sort of grand master plan to unleash this pandemic... Maybe you'd be a little less sloppy with your paperwork and not have it so easy to trace back to you. You know, these things fall apart so quickly because they're so easily found, and and they don't make any sense, and they fall apart under the slightest amount of examination. But unfortunately, a lot of people don't want to do that examination, and it's just easier to blame somebody else.
1: That is a great transition to a question that I have to ask you. Your book is not about QAnon, but you have a lot of expertise around QAnon. And while you're here, I have to know, I've been blissfully unaware of QAnon for the last year or so.
0: Did they go away? Is that
1: the answer? What's going on there? Yeah. What's happening with QAnon? Did they all go home? That's the answer, I hope.
2: Oh, oh they never go home. They, oh, they just find somewhere else to crash. So the the QAnon that we knew of from, you know, October 2017 up until January 6th, that's not really going anymore because it really can't The, the entire QAnon mythology was based around Donald Trump unleashing the purge of the deep state on Twitter. Well, Donald Trump is not the president anymore and he's not on Twitter anymore. So that whole thing just doesn't really work. But you never let a good conspiracy theory go to waste.
0: They put a lot of work in, Mike. They put a lot of work in. Okay. Yeah. It's like, that'd be wasteful.
2: If you pitch a big project and it doesn't go forward, you don't just trash it. You use some of that for your next big project. So, the next big conspiracy project is this mainstreaming of the stolen election, of all the COVID conspiracies. So, you know, Q in the Q posts spent a year pushing the idea that Joe Biden could not win the election the only way that biden could win is if he cheated. well biden won so he cheated. so all of that of course is now completely mainstream in the gop. and all of that really touches on qAnon. you know all of these ideas of, all of these conspiracies about the you know the stolen ballots and the ballot dumps and the voting machines and the satellites and all that stuff that stuff is all qAnon. now the other thing that has really ramped up in 2023 is this idea of fighting trafficking so we have this Sound of Freedom movie.
0: Have you seen it, Mike?
2: I, you know what? I, there is only a certain amount of masochism that I have. Well,
0: dang it. I was hoping you would do the work for us because we don't want to see it either.
2: And then, you know, everything that I know about the film is that it really is not worth seeing. It's not a great movie, but it's, you know, a lot of it has been blamed on QAnon. The movie was shot five years ago. QAnon hadn't <sharp> even started. But you've got a lot of these concepts that are very central to QAnon. And of course, it doesn't help that the star of the movie, Jim Caviezel, is a is a QAnon promoter who is going on QAnon shows and going to QAnon conventions. So the director of the film is being asked over and over and over again, you know, hey, what does this have to do with QAnon? And of course, he, he doesn't want to throw his leading man under the bus, but he doesn't want to have anything to do with QAnon. It's that same dance that these people have done for years. They don't push it away and they don't pull it closer. They just kind of mm-hmm. throw out enough to keep the believers happy. So you've had all of this mainstreaming of these ideas behind QAnon, the trafficking. You know, you have this this country song, Richmond, North of Richmond, makes a Jeffrey Epstein reference. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that happens without QAnon. So we've now left behind the trappings of the hashtags and the codes and the, you know, the memes but we now just have a, a mainstream acceptability of all this stuff that doesn't need any of the, you know, the special codes and the clues anymore. It's just kind of everywhere now.
1: And Jeffrey Epstein continues to be so hard because that's the, with with the Rothschilds, they were really rich. And Jeffrey Epstein really did do terrible things. And there really is trafficking in the world. All of these, like, components of truth that just balloon into mythology. And it, it, I guess I wonder, as you continue to do your work, what you find to be really helpful in speaking to people who are down the rabbit holes here to acknowledge what is true without embracing what, what has grown out of that truth.
2: We can absolutely embrace the truths that form the core of a lot of these theories. Jeffrey Epstein was a bad person. The banks are not necessarily your friend. The pharmaceutical industry has harmed some people. The government does not always do things the right way. All of that's true. None of it requires a conspiracy theory. So for me, with you know, with the Rothschilds, I think, well, yeah, they are extremely wealthy. They were extremely powerful to the point where they could act as European peacemakers. They could defuse wars with their money. They can't do it now, but they could do it before. They made a lot of money off of the Napoleonic Wars. All of that's true. That does not mean that Nathan Rothschild manipulated the Battle of Waterloo to become the richest man in the world. Not true. It's not necessary to have happened. You can look at who the family is, what they accomplished. You can look at the positives and negatives of that kind of concentration of wealth without getting into conspiracy theories and certainly without getting into anti-Semitic canards.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your work around this. Everybody should check out the book. I really enjoyed it. I learned so much. Good. yeah. And thank you for your work around conspiracy theories and disinformation. And I guess we won't require you to see Sound of Freedom.
2: Thank you.
1: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin. And I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered shower head purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you.
0: Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to 3rd Love, you can have both But for outside of politics today, considering we just had Mike on, we thought it would be fun to talk about conspiracy theories in our own lives. And at first, we were like, should we talk about a conspiracy theory we kind of believe? But I don't think I do. And then we thought, well, how do we define a conspiracy theory? So I looked it up, and it is a belief that some secret but influential organization is responsible for an event or phenomenon. And under that definition, I really don't believe in any conspiracy theories. What do you think?
1: I don't think so either. As I was considering, what do I actually believe? That's a little off the beaten path. I realized I don't believe in conspiracy theories that require secret knowledge or coordination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I am more likely to buy things that are about how little we know. Yes. Okay. I will buy some sightings of a Loch Ness monster or a, a Yeti. You know what I mean? A things Yeti. where it's like there are unexplainable phenomenon in the universe and we haven't categorized and labeled everything yet. That's more my jam. Then a whole bunch of people really know everything and are pulling the strings on everything.
0: well, that's a good transition to our Friday show, which when for real, for real, we're going to talk about uFOs guys like for real, unless the universe throws us a curveball, <laughs> which I shouldn't have said out, I like left. how you said for sure, except not. <laughs> it's not our fault if it doesn't happen. It's always the news. But yeah, I agree with that i'm I'm more likely to think some things aren't well explained. Underexplained, if you will. I definitely don't believe in the role of like secret organizations. I guess I believe that there's coordination that has led to things that we don't fully understand. The first thing I thought of was the JFK assassination, and you know we have new news about this. Have you heard? Yes, about the Secret Service yes, the agent. Secret yes, Secret Service agent. So the magic bullet, which truly is hard to believe that the bullet went through JFK and then went into the governor of Texas and turned around a couple times. It's it's. It stretches the the bounds of the imagination. Now, this guy's saying, well, I found that bullet in the back of the governor's seat. So it definitely didn't hit the governor because I found it and then I put it on the hospital gurney that the president was on. I don't think we fully understand JFK's assassination, I, but I don't think it's a secret organization trying to pull the strings. I think what most likely happened is in that moment, there were many people in charge in organizations that thought like, We don't understand this. And if we go to the public and say we don't understand this, that's really going to set off a five alarm fire. So let's just pretend we understand it. I think that's probably more likely in a lot of conspiracy theories. People think, well, I don't have the answer, so let's make one up. Knowing that, like, people are going to figure out you made it up and that's going to make it worse. Yeah, I believe there are
1: mysteries. Mysteries. I believe there are nefarious actors. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I believe there are coincidences like the, I, I believe a lot of what gives rise to a conspiracy theory. I just don't believe in like invisible hands where someone really does have all the facts and is making all the decisions. I just don't think people are very good at keeping secrets or no, coordinating with each other or following hierarchy to the degree that would be needed for that kind of structural string pulling to happen.
0: But then I read this article in the New York Times about sort of the art world and how it really is like a couple families, they corner the market on an artist, they drive the prices up, and you're like, you read stuff like that, and you're like, well, this is how people get there. And this was hidden, but eventually someone pursued them. They kept treating their ex-wives bad enough that some of the lawyers pursued them. That's what actually happened. You know, you read those stories, and you're like, well, I see how people get there. So then let's think about this then. What mysteries do you think maybe we think we understand, but we don't fully understand, like the JFK assassination? That is rife for conspiracy theories, but that's not necessarily what you believe, but you do think we don't know everything.
1: I definitely think that we have government organizations that know lots more than the general public knows that they know.
0: Okay. Or even more
1: than Congress knows that they know. I believe in secrets operating within portions of the government and let me be clear, I think some of that's important. Like, I don't, that's not to say that it's all bad. I just yeah. believe that there are secrets, things being developed and tested that we don't know about. Okay. So I would put that in the the specter of mystery. I mean, I would like to know about the Bermuda Triangle. Like, I think okay. there are a, a number of things throughout history where it's like, boy, that's weird. Can't explain it yet. And and I hope someday that we will. But I also kind of like that we can't explain everything.
0: I will say, with regards to the Loch Ness Monster, which I've really never believed in, and wasn't super fascinated by, like, we drove by Loch Ness and we didn't even stop. I was like, oh, uh, there it is. Cool. Until recently, I read that it is deeper than the mountains around it are high. And then I thought, oh, well, dang, I wish I'd stopped. (laughs) I am appalled that you did not stop. I am appalled by this. (laughs) Ah. Loch Ness
1: is one of the Spookiest, strangest, coolest places I have ever been. We took a boat across Loch Ness when we were there, and the water is so dark. It looks like you're floating on oil. It's amazing. It is so dark, and it just hangs in the air like this is somewhere really different. The whole town Mm. just has a vibe that it's like there is something unusual here. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if we just haven't named all of the life that exists in a place like that, and that people have seen things combined with that kind of creepy vibe and and built a story around it. I cannot believe you didn't stop
0: at Loch Ness. I didn't. That's, I don't know, Sarah. I don't know. I'm going to didn't stop. I'm gonna have to take a breath about that. There's so much driving in Scotland. You can't stop everywhere, Beth. We almost ran out of gas one time because the place is so dang remote. Well, just— Everybody's on notice. If you go to Scotland and don't stop at
1: Loch Ness, please don't tell me about it. I'm appalled.
0: Well, look, you know, and that's what happens, I think. It's like the conspiracy theories are getting at something that's, like, off. It's just they—it's just to me, it's like they try to provide an answer and they rob the complexity, the mystery of the actual situation. But the problem is when you try to shut down a conspiracy theory by saying, like, that's dumb. The people here are like, you're also telling me nothing's off— at all, which is not necessarily what you're saying. And so it's like a a catch-22, which is what, you know, the last time Mike was on, we talked about this more broadly. And it is a super fine line.
1: When you look at things like the Pandora Papers or the entire situation with Jeffrey Epstein, open secrets like Harvey Weinstein, things that you're just like, man, this is not right. Why have so many people been complicit in something being wrong? I get how you can start to, like, tiptoe away. Yeah, but
0: complicit and secretive are not the same thing. Right. Right. They're not the same thing. And that's, I think, what we struggle with. We struggle with the the difference between complicit, which I think is harder to understand, right? That's why we create the nefarious, secret-keeping, highly organized organizations, because it's hard to face the reality that people are just complicit in situations that shock the conscience.
1: And we're still learning what transparency in the digital age means. I could see believing in a lot more of this stuff before the Internet and before the time when journalists have become so good at infiltrating things that used to be truly secretive. But, I mean, just this morning, I'm reading about a secretive push to force Texas senators to vote not guilty for Ken Paxton in his impeachment trial I don't think that's a conspiracy theory because it's out there and we understand how it happened. Right. But 5, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, what would that have looked like to everyone? Would there have been a sense that some people were pulling strings behind the scenes?
0: I don't know where the lines are. No, I totally agree. It's like we need a different word. Mm -hmm. It's like we need a different word for that complicitness in systems that are really harmful versus conspiracy theories, which— branch off and and create really harmful things like all these anti-Semitic tropes and, you know, stop people from facing the the gray areas of life. I think that's it. It's like just people want the villain. They want the black hat and the white hat. And conspiracy theories allow them to do that in really complicated, ethically ambiguous situations.
1: I think we all also want to be on the hero's journey in some way. Like there's a reason that National Treasure was such a big movie. You know, I think we all like the idea that that there could be gold buried somewhere or these amazing artifacts and if we can only solve puzzles left for us by the ancients we'll get there. I mean, I love that kind of movie. I watch it all day long. I don't know if I believe that sort of thing is actually out there, but
0: I would be delighted if it were. I don't know if I would be delighted if it were. I prefer the gray, morally ambiguous to the to the power of the easy black and white situation. That kind of freaks me out, I would say. But maybe what you're getting at is the the aspect of conspiracy theories, which I do think you have to name, which is that they're entertaining. I think that's what happens so often with people is that they name something that makes them feel better and it tells a story that's entertaining. I mean, that's why we all like the Da Vinci Code so much, even though that book was bad. The book was bad, y'all.
1: And online conspiracy theories give you a role to play, right? You get to be a detective. You get to be on this adventure of connecting dots and pulling pieces together. And Mm -hmm. I completely understand that instinct.
0: So in summary, conspiracy theories, we understand the instinct, but we have to fight them, y'all. Correct. Because people get hurt by them, and that's That's where the fun stops. Uh, Isn't that the truth? Often the truth. Many things, not just conspiracy theories. Well, thank you to Mike Rothschild for joining us here again at Pantsuit Politics, and thank all of you for listening. We will be back in your ears on Friday with UFOs, unless some secret organization interferes to create a news event that keeps us from doing this very important episode. Just saying.
1: Don't forget that we'd love to join your organization in 2024 to help you communicate better through presidential elections or whatever you're dealing with. One corporate event recently said we were able to simplify the complex, read the temperature of the room, and engage the audience exceptionally well. We love to hear that, and
0: we would love to do it with your group as well. Check out our website, PantsuitPoliticsShow.com, for more information. Thank you for joining us here at Pantsuit Politics. We'll be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production.
1: Elise Knapp is our Managing Director. Maggie Pinton is our Director of Community
0: Engagement. Xander Singh is the composer of our theme music with inspiration from original work by Dante Lima.
1: Our show is listener-supported.
0: Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards.
1: Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holiday, Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling, Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Katherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure,
2: Linda Daniel,
1: Emily Neasley, The Pesans,
2: Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers,
1: Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Villelli, Amy Whitehead,
2: Emily Helen Olson,
0: Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh,
2: Danny Osmond,
0: Jen Ross. Sabrina Drago. Becca Dorval. The, the family! <laughs> Jeff Davis, Joshua Allen, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.